I'm not doing that. Um, would you like me to stomp it? Uh, there we go. Just need a little threat. Okay. Uh, as Sheila announced earlier, this is a time of year when we gear up our discipleship ministries, and I wanted to talk about that some today. And uh, I wanted to talk about the archetype for making disciples, which we find in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So I'd like to read that. Starting with verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. In these verses, we see that the church of Jesus Christ was being formed. It literally shows us how they were being formed. The same, these are the people that turned the world upside down. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost created a new community with new values, a new power, a new way of living. And those observing it from the outside were drawn to it like bees to pollen. It grew by leaps and bounds. It, on the day of Pentecost, it was 3,000. Some estimate that by the first year of the existence of the church, there were 100,000 believers in Jerusalem. One cannot help but see the contrast between what happened 2,000 years ago and what's happening today in the church in North America. They became a radical new culture that shared everything, had all things in common. The church in North America it basically is filled with consumers who reflect the, the materialistic status quo. They grew supernaturally and exponentially. The church in North America is dying. We're headed towards Europe. They were passionately in love with Jesus Christ. North Americans are still obsessed with themselves. They were the best advertising for the kingdom of God. Sometimes the church in North America is the worst. Consumed with the church as an institution and looking at sinners outside of the church as the enemy, not as people who need to be saved. We keep making the same mistakes over and over. One pastor was playing golf with his buddy and he noticed that his, both, of his ear, both of the ears of his, friends, of his friend were bandaged. And he said, Cecil, what happened? Cecil said, well, I was ironing a shirt when the phone rang and accidentally I put the iron up to my ear instead of the phone. Curious, his friend said, so what happened to the other ear? And the guy said, well, he called back. <laughs> we have to quit making the same mistakes. Take a look at how we make disciples and how the church in Acts did it. In Acts, they met in small groups and in homes. They shared their lives together intimately. They prayed together about real and present needs. They applied the apostles' teaching in a contract, context of direct accountability and encouragement, and they spent a great deal of time worshiping the risen Christ. They were absolutely, totally in love and in relationship with Jesus, in part because they were in the community of Christ that met regularly together. The first great problem 
of the modern North American church when it comes to discipleship is that often we treat Jesus like a subject to be studied rather than a person to be known. We have changed from the church in Acts from knowing Jesus intimately to knowing about Jesus, and they are not the same thing. The first Christians in this world did not fall in love with a creed. They fell in love with the risen Lord made available through the Spirit, poured out in, at Pentecost that we just read about. Reggie McNeil said that he did a seminar, and a person came up to him and said, I teach a new Christian class. And he said, you know, some of these students in my new Christian class disgust me. They don't know anything. They don't know about the Bible, about God, about sharing their testimony, or about church. Imagine that, no, new Christians not knowing that. And he pressed McKenzie. He said, what do you think I ought to teach him? And he said, I, I knew this guy was setting me up for something. And so McKenzie asked, what are you teaching them? And he said, I've put together a notebook. And he pulled out his notebook. McKenzie said it was large enough for two llamas to carry that thing. He said, I drew a deep mental breath and plunged in. He said, I bet there's a lot of good stuff in there, but you might want to consider a different approach. If I were responsible for coaching a group of brand new Christians, I think I would conduct the group like a marriage enrichment seminar. These people have just gotten married to Jesus. They have fallen in love with Him and have just committed themselves to Him for life. How do we help them stay in love and keep the relationship growing? To drive the point home, McKenzie added, I'm so glad my wife did not turn to me on the way to our honeymoon and say, now that we've gotten the wedding ceremony behind us, I've taken the liberty of putting together a workbook. He said, I don't think that would have made for a great honeymoon. Christians, especially evangelical Christians, emphasize that our connectedness to God is through a relationship with Jesus. We talk about giving Him our hearts and inviting Him into our hearts. We use love language to talk about committing our lives to Him. And then, as soon as the deal is done, we switch the language and go straight to head stuff. We pull out the notebooks. We go over what we believe, information about the church, and so on. He said, I've learned a few things about my wife, Kathy, in our two-plus decades of marriage. I have discovered what she likes and what she doesn't like. I have learned about her family and why she is the way she is. I don't know about her, he said. I know her. In fact, she called while I was writing this, he said. And from her first word, I knew her mood. Not from her words, but from her tone. There is a way, you know, tone means everything. When, when you ask somebody, are, are you fine? There are ways somebody says, I'm fine, and they're not fine. She and I have achieved an intimacy that comes from hanging out together, sharing dreams and hurts, working on projects together like raising two daughters and pastoring and leading a new church experiencing leisure and fun together, and from sharing countless days of more routine experiences. I can finish some of her sentences. I know what she thinks about a lot of things without having to ask anyone. We both have had romantic moments and contentious moments. Even while we're, we've been developing as individuals, our growth has been bent toward each other, like plants searching for sunlight will bend toward the sun. 
This is how a relationship develops with people you love and live with. What does that mean for today? We can't disciple people the way a math teacher teaches math. We cannot disciple the way an English teacher gets someone to study and write an essay about someone. We are not here just to learn facts about Jesus, but how to walk with Jesus, how to talk with Jesus, how to listen to Jesus, how to be guided by Jesus, how to be loved by Jesus, how to be filled with His Spirit. And something is terribly wrong if that is not happening. Christianity is about who you follow, not about how much information you amass. You can be theologically correct and orthodox and still be dead as a dodo spiritually. We don't necessarily need better bureaucracies or better rules or better education in the North American church. We need better relationships, first and foremost with Jesus Christ and then with each other. Because faith is not primarily ideas about God, but a living encounter with God. That's why the Holy Spirit was sent here to begin with. I'll say it this way. There is no substitute for an encounter with the living Christ. There is no substitute for it. There is no substitute for being touched by the Lord. Remember, they brought little children to Jesus. It says, in order that they, they might touch him. I don't know about you, but every now and then I need a touch by Jesus. I just need him to touch me. It is in the act of touch that we become most present and real to each other. One pastor said some years ago, we took our three children to Disneyland. And Mickey Mouse came out to greet the public down at Disneyland. And all the kids wanted the same thing. They didn't ask for gifts or free passes. They wanted to be touched by Mickey. Our youngest child jumped up and down and began to shout over and over, Touch me! Touch me! Belle, the star of Beauty and the Beast, came out. Our two oldest daughters jumped up and down and began to shout over and over, Touch me! Touch me! He said a little while later we saw Kevin Costner there with his children. My wife jumped up and down and began to shout, Touch me! Touch me! When Christians become more focused and, or learning principles about God than knowing God, Christianity becomes lifeless. It becomes dead. I am absolutely convinced most churches have to rethink how they make disciples. For instance, most churches assume that if you hang around church long enough, somehow things you'll just absorb Christianity. My experience in 43 years as a pastor is that does not happen. Or we think if people learn a certain curriculum, they will become spiritually mature. But information, I have found, does not translate into transformation. Because intellectually grasping something doesn't mean that it becomes part and parcel to your life. I know people that know so much Bible and spiritually, they're walking around with shriveled souls. Look at how Jesus taught, how different than it is now. He created situations where people actually had to learn things he taught by first by watching him, then listening as he explained things, and then by actually doing what he taught them. 
He sent them, you know, to, to actually apply his teachings in life situations and then gave them insights into what they did right and wrong when they did it. You know, like healing. Jesus said, look, I'm going to heal people. And then I'm going to explain to you why I healed people and how I healed people. And then you go out and heal people. And when you come back, we'll, deal, we'll debrief. You can tell me what you learned and you can tell me what your questions were and what your concerns were. But that's how Jesus taught people. He did the same with demons. He said, look, I'm going to deliver demons. Now I'm going to teach you about how I have power over the demons. And you go out and deliver demons too. He didn't so much lecture his disciples as he coached them. And did you notice? A coach not only teaches, but he or she creates experiences to put into practice what he just or she just taught. Jesus just didn't just teach a course on prayer. What did he do? He modeled prayer. He modeled prayer, and it was so powerful, they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And then he gave them the principles of prayer. That's why we have the Lord's Prayer. And then after he taught them the principles of prayer, he put them into situations where they had to pray or else they were in real trouble. And then he dialogued with them about their experiences. Jesus did not send his followers to a four-year college to amass volumes of information. No coach would, you know. I, uh, I was watching, you know, Alabama football. I watched them stomp somebody else again yesterday. And I thought to myself, now here's Nick Saban, the greatest coach in America, and here is Alabama, the best team in America. And here is the University of Alabama, which has the more national championships than any college in college history. And what if Nick Saban, in preparing his team, just handed them a playbook and said, I want you to memorize the plays. But we're not going to practice tackling. We're not going to practice blocking. We're not going to practice passing and catching. We're not going to practice the plays. I, I just want you to study the playbook, and then we'll go out on Saturday and play the game. What do you think would happen? It would be like watching Penn State. It would be awful. <laughs> By the way, after I said that in the first service, I, I need a couple of you lacrosse players to stand by me at the door because I was physically threatened. Uh, <laughs> And I refuse to be intimidated by older women. I just won't be, so. Some of them are mean. <laughs> Jesus actually sent some of his, his disciples on missions he knew they were not completely ready for in order to help them learn. Please understand this about Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for your perfection. Jesus didn't say to his disciples, I'll use you after you've mastered all the material. That's North American academics. That's not Jesus. He didn't say, I'll use you when you have perfect faith. That's not Jesus. He said, I'll grow you up while you're obeying me. I'm sending you out incomplete in order to grow and complete you while you obey what I've asked you to do. Isn't that what John wrote in his first letter? He said, if anyone keeps Christ's word, love for God is made perfect in them. 
It's as as we obey, we grow. It's not like we study and study and study and, and grow and then go obey. That's not how it works. We obey and grow. It's why, you know, it, it, as we walk in the light, that's when we receive more light. If you're sitting there in the corner waiting to obey God, you don't get more light. It's as, it's as we obey that the Spirit enlarges our hearts. It's as we obey that truth becomes alive and real. Jesus never let the disciples' learning just become intellectual. Because you see, Christianity is not just mental. It's soul, it's heart, it's life, it's all of your being. And we grow best spiritually by experiencing things. Did you hear that? Not studying and memorizing things, experiencing them. I came across an article entitled, Great Truths About Life Little Children Have Learned. And how do little children learn? They experience things. I love some of the titles they said. Some of the truths include this. One little girl said, when mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. Another truth a young child learned is you can't trust dogs to watch your food for you no matter how friendly they act. Here's one. Never wear a polka, never wear polka dot underwear under white shorts. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> and here's the one I liked best. No matter how hard you try, you can't baptize a cat. I've tried to wash them, and I ended up bloody, and the cat ended up dry. But of course, there's a deeper reason you cannot baptize a cat. It's because they are so contrary and aloof, even Jesus cannot save a cat. Some of you cat people thought, I forgot about you. I hadn't picked on you for a while. What I'm trying to get at is this. Discipleship or real spiritual formation only comes when we come together and we apply God's Word in each of our lives together in concrete ways. That's what we have with the DMM, the discipleship-making ministry that we have here. You know what the revolutionary truth of that is with that Bible study? It simply says, not only does what does this verse say, but what are you going to do about this verse? Are you going to obey it or are you not going to obey it? What is God calling you to do and how do you need God? So that throws, you know, in order to do it, you'll need God's help. So that throws you into prayer, and you need the advice and the encouragement and accountability with other believers. So that places you into the body of Christ. And by the way, it shouldn't just be for, for any small group we have, any Sunday school class. I think that should be the question, the two questions is asked in any curriculum, in any setting. When you study God's Word or a book about God's Word, you ought to ask two questions. What are we going to do about this? And the second question is, where do we need God's help to get this done and what should we start praying about? Instead of just stuffing it in our heads and getting more and more and more knowledge and getting weaker spiritually as Christians. 
Spiritual transformation only happens when Christians come together and apply Christianity to relevant parts of their lives where they help each other, pray for each other, celebrate and worship with each other, what Christ has done in, in us and what Christ is doing in us. It's in small groups of believers coming together, opening their lives to each other, talking about their spiritual journeys, their marriages, their addictions, their real-life struggles, and while praying with and for each other, encouraging each other and holding each other accountable in grace. That's where real change comes from. So often we just play games with each other. We hide from each other, don't we? We, we you know, and of course you can't come clean on a Sunday morning. But, but you need to find one person or two or three or eight or ten. You need to find somebody you can come clean with. And, you know, so often we have this veneer of pious language about us, don't we? We, we can spiritualize almost anything if you've hung around church long enough. So there's a story about the boy who came home and didn't see his mom visiting with their pastor. And in his hand, he held a dead baby bunny. And he said, Mom, you'll never guess what. This bunny was running around in the garage, and I found a rock, and I hit it. And it just laid there, so I went over and stomped it to make sure it was dead. And then I picked it up and threw it against the wall as hard as I could, and I picked it up and threw it again, Mom. And then he saw that the pastor was there. And if looks could kill, that kid would have been dead. And trying to recover and using pious language, he held the baby bunny high in the air and said in a pious voice, and then the dear Lord called him home. <laughs> Isn't it amazing what God gets credit for? God help us all. We need to get together. We need to deepen our relationships with Christ and each other in the Spirit through prayer and worship. We don't need another, to be honest, we don't need another book. I'm not against books. i got a jillion of them. We don't need another seminar, and I'm sure there's good seminars out there. But this is not how you make disciples. The New Testament church worshiped and prayed and fellowshiped and applied God's word to their lives in their homes, and they did these things together regularly. You know, what I find is not only do we try to grow spiritually in isolation, and you show me a person in isolation, and I'll show you generally a person in trouble spiritually, but we tend to separate the things God wants put together. For instance, when it comes to studying the Word or the Apostles' teaching, well, that's for Sunday school. When it comes to worship, like they did in the homes, well, that's for church service. When it comes for fellowship, well, that's for small groups. When it comes for prayer, well, that's for home. And we take all these elements that we see in Acts chapter 2 and we split them up. They were not meant to be split up. It's like baking a cake. A cake is made up of butter and eggs and milk and cake mix. There's nothing wrong with eggs. They're good for you, at least this month. There's nothing wrong with milk. It's good for you, too, till the next Harvard study. There's nothing wrong with butter. Butter adds flavor to it. You know what they stu They studied the great cooks of the world. And the one element that every great cook has is they, have, they use but lots of butter. Butter's great. I, I get, every now and then I get out a stick and lick it. And uh, you don't? 
Well, then I don't either. Okay. <laughs> and of course, there's lots of granulated sugar and nothing wrong with that. But if you want a cake, you have to put all of it together in order for it to work. If you want spiritual formation, you need not just prayer, but prayer and worship. And not just prayer and worship, you need to be applying the Word. And you not only need to be applying the Word, you need fellowship to help keep you focused. That's how it works. That's what Acts 2 taught us. And what we do is we pick this and pick this and do this in isolation and do that in isolation and wonder why it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you're supposed to put it all together. Several years ago, a ninth grader pulled a fire alarm at his school. And the bells rang, and in just a few minutes, three fire trucks were screaming, came in there with sirens blasted, blasting. And when asked why he pulled the fire alarm, the young man said, I didn't think it would work. For centuries, people have looked at Acts chapter 2 and tried to improve on it, dissect it, reduce it to principles, separate the four dynamics and make them go separately, or just ignore it. Why do we do that? Apparently, we don't think God knew what he was doing in Acts chapter 2, and we don't believe it will work. Yet church history says otherwise. When you look at the movements of St. Francis, or the First or Second Great Awakening, or John Wesley's class meetings, apparently... What happened in Acts chapter 2 is exactly what works. This is how the first Spirit-filled churches were led by the Holy Spirit to do church. This is how the first disciples were made, and these disciples turned the world upside down. There's something wrong with the church in Western civilization. We are not seeing what the New Testament church produced or what churches around the world now are producing in Africa and Central and South America and Asia. Vibrant, passionate, spirit-filled, witnessing lovers of Jesus Christ. Something is wrong when Christians in America have approximately the same rate of divorce as non-Christians, the same rates of alcoholism and drug addiction as non-Christians, the same rates of adultery as non-Christians, the same spending habits and selfishness as the culture around them. Transformation is not happening on a large scale in our churches. Christianity is supposed to be a community of throbbing, bleeding, broken, passionate hearts bound together in the Spirit of Christ, but it's not. The New Testament church did not come together and discuss goals. The New Testament church did not come together and form five-year plans. They came together and they worshiped and they listened to the apostles' teaching and applied it directly to their lives in every area and they prayed for God's help and prayed for God's help for other people in that group and they held each other accountable and when there was success, they worshiped the living Christ. Let me ask you, if you're here today looking for a church or thinking about leaving this one, In our country, what I've noticed is we search, we shop for churches for all kinds of reasons. Is the youth group one my kids would like? Is it enough fun? Is the worship music to my liking, my style? 
Does the preacher amuse? Well, yes. But the question should be, here's the real question in terms of finding a church. If I join this church, will I grow in spiritual maturity? Will I be equipped to use my gifts? Will people join with me and encourage me and pray for me and celebrate God's goodness and power working in me? Will I actually be expected to grow? Is God's Spirit moving and transforming? God is out to create a new kind of human being. And that new kind of human being is one who acts like, thinks like, and loves like Jesus. Actually, one who is actually filled with Jesus. To that end, he sent the Spirit of Jesus to fill us and the community of Jesus to form us. And the question every one of us has to ask individually is, is discipleship happening in my life? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I becoming more loving? Am I becoming more joyful? Am I becoming a person that actually draws people to the kingdom instead of repels them? Am I a person of justice? Am I a person who somebody gets around me and they, they, they catch a whiff of something and they're not quite sure what that whiff is of, but they like it because they're catching the scent of Jesus through His Spirit? Because if that's not what's happening, we're in trouble, and the church is in trouble. And that means in North America, the whole continent's in trouble, which it is. And the only answer is for the church to be the church as Jesus designed it. Acts chapter 2 is the church as Jesus designed it. With all of these elements working together synergistically, one feeding on the other, one helping the other, one emphasizing the other. Because see, when you study God's Word, it should drive you to obedience. When it drives you to obedience, it should drive you to your knees. When it drives you to your knees, it should drive you to community. All of these things work together in your life, is there a place with one other person, two, three, four, eight, ten? Is there a place in your life where the Acts 2 dynamics are happening? Is there? That's why we offer discipleship making ministries. That's why we offer life groups. That's and and I, you know, we we want you to grow. I'd like you to, before we take communion today, I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to ask the Spirit if you're being obedient in this area. And are there people the Spirit is leading you to
if you are stagnant, maybe it's time to do it God's way. It's not a mystery. It's not a secret he's keeping from us. Forgive us, Jesus. Of our sins. Forgive us of our lethargy. Forgive some of us for giving up. Forgive some of us for not paying attention. Help us to be your church, your body, alive, spirit-filled, on fire, applying your word to every aspect of our life in a community of love. Help us to grow together. In Jesus' name. Today we're going to do communion. And we are going to do communion differently than we've ever done it before. We are going, we, 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 some of the folks that went to General Conference in Orlando, this is what they did at General Conference. And folks really enjoyed it. And they said, we ought to do that at HBIC, so we're going to do it here at HBIC. And, um, and uh, so we are going to circle the sanctuary and then take communion. And how we want you to do it is there are two stations up here. There's a station and there's a station. And we would like you to come down the two center aisles, get the cup and the bread, and go down the outside aisles along the wall and go, go down the walls until you run into somebody else and stop. Please don't keep going. And until we circle this whole sanctuary... We ask you to hold the cup and hold the bread until we all can participate of it together. And uh, we want you to know that you do not have to be a member of this church to participate in this. We just ask that you love the Lord. If you're allergic to gluten, in, in, when you come up here, you'll notice in some packs there is bread that is gluten-free. You may partake of that. I think this is a beautiful symbol of, of the body of Christ in a circle one, and, and in oneness. And what I like about it is that during communion, we're looking into each other's faces instead of at the back of somebody's head. I like that. And you get to see in, in a different angle, but you get to see what I and the worship leaders and the people up front get to see every Sunday. You get to see how beautiful you are as the body of Jesus Christ. It's a neat view. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to, uh, Titus is going to play, and uh, the servers are coming, and I'm going to ask you to stand now. That, that means all of you. And uh, now if you, are not able to stand against the wall for any length of time, just, just sit.
and we'll get the communion elements to you. But if you can stand, please stand along the wall. Um, <laughs> I rebuke you. <laughs> um, and we're not going to do this by rows. We are going to invite you to come to the nearest station down the center aisles uh, when you're ready. Get your elements, hold them, and then go, and then we will do the responsive reading and the partaking of communion together. So let's begin. Also, we would like you to come across here in the front. Both, both when you run out of room, please just come and join, make the circle complete here in, in the front. Yeah, come. You guys can start coming this way. Yes, please come this way.
You can stand in front of the tables too at this point. There's some room over here for the folks in that line if you want to come right here. Take a good look. Do you like what you see? Those of you that don't, would you raise your hand? Okay. Uh, we now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Let us, before we do this, take the communion. I just want you to say, I want to say, we're going to take the communion together, and then I want you to remain standing where you are. We will sing our final song together standing. It makes no sense to have you sit down and then get back up. We'll, you'll be dismissed from the service where you are, okay? Let us proceed with the communion. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave to his disciples. We follow his example. Brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. Thank you, Lord. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup, blessed it, and gave it to his disciples. We do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. We bless your name, Lord Jesus. Not just that you are here and the Holy Spirit is here, but all of us are here. I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you for this body, Lord, in all its diversity and wonder and beauty. And I pray, Lord, that you will t help us to be the church you want us to be and the disciples you want us to be. In Jesus' name, let us sing our final song.
wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, we got to sing this. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Naught of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'm going to do the benediction, but I'm going to ask you to do one thing before we leave. In the New Testament church, they were told to greet each other with a holy kiss. And that meant men kissed each other on the lips and women kissed each other on the lips. And so we're not going to do that. <laughs> But what I'm going to ask you to do is to, to give each other a holy hug before you leave this place, okay? You, and it cannot be an immediate family member. You must hug somebody and tell them you love them in the name of Jesus, okay? Okay? We're not leaving until you say okay. <laughs> okay. Lord Jesus, bless us. Thank you for the body of Jesus. Teach us your ways, O oh Lord. Make us like yourself, precious Jesus. Help us to be the living body of Christ as you designed it. In your name we ask it. Amen and amen. Start hugging. <laughs>